I was I was walking through the airport terminal when my eyes met those of a baby approaching approach approaching me, strapped into a carrier on his mother's chest, and I knew that baby was me. A thrill went through me. I knew in that moment that it did not matter that I was aging because that baby, me, in a newer, fresher guise, was on his way up in life. I recall laughing, maybe even out loud, as the baby and mother passed by. I knew that the others around me were all too and part of me, and the mother and the baby were part of each other as well, coming and going in this airline terminal and in life. I felt happy, and I said to myself, thinking about interconnection is one thing, but these moments of direct understanding are great. I sat in the boarding lounge feeling tremendous affection for my fellow travelers. You know, when I said before that the insights of Buddhist practice that are meant to liberate the mind from suffering are the insights of impermanence, and also the insight of interconnection, of contingency, that nothing lives this life alone. We come and we go and we come and we go. It's part of the whole changing, um, changing uh, anatomy and physiology and geography of the world and of everything in it. We're all recycling, and we're all recycling out of one guise into another, not becoming that, we're just this is continuing to this, to continuing to that, continuing to that, because in some way we're really connected. It's all creation unfolding. And in those moments, it stops being my story, and it starts being the story. And you say, the story is amazing. The story is amazing. Who could imagine that in this vast cosmos, with all this vast space, there's this teeny little blue-looking, blue green-looking rock floating around, three rocks from the sun, on which all of this extraordinary drama is taking place. Eight billion, seven billion? How many billion drums? Seven billion we're up to now. Seven billion dramas, all of them unfolding, and seven, seven billion dramas feeling like personal dramas. It's like the ultimate in channel TV, you know. <laughs> Seven billion uh, soap operas, but that that uh, that are are getting written moment to moment. But in fact, there's uh, it's, there's the bigger a story of this planet floating in space, going on an arc that it's so well determined and figured out that we can know when the next transit of Venus is going to be. And why is it that when we see the transit of Venus, we get picked up? Why, you know, so, so I didn't see it directly, but somebody brought me pictures. This was it, I saw the transit of Venus. How many of you saw it? Were you all excited about it? Yeah, I would have been. So why do you think that is? Why? It's so extraordinarily rare. It's rare, yeah. And that we knew about it, and that we could figure it out about it, and know where you should be in order to see it and what it was. I mean, it's just an, enor an enormous event. I was thinking about uh, the last time we were here, we were talking about uh, uh, 
contingencies as well. We ended up talking about that uh, 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 volcano in uh, Malaysia, in, in Indonesia, that came over and could say that everything was contingent on everything else. The volcano was not the proximal cause of the um, the crop failure in uh, Ireland because it happened a long time, a long way away. And there were other causes. The winds blew this way and not that way. Had the winds blown another way, that dust would have been in another place. But the wind blew that way. So because of this and because of that and because of this and because of that, because of this. And so when you think about it, it, it it always is, people might say, so what, so what? When I think of, when I say something, when I feel something and I say it's because of him, it's because of her, it's because of everything. Everything is because of everything. And it takes out for me the, the idea that anything is to blame. It's all to blame and it's all to praise because everything is because of everything. If somebody was telling me, with a therapist friend of mine was telling me, she said, when I went to therapy school, it was uh, in the 1970s and 80s, and it was very much in vogue to say, because my mother this and my mother that, and you went every week to your session and you re-talked about your mother this and your mother that. Probably re-aggravated your brain each time that you did that. And, uh, and you actually don't know it's because your mother this, your, mo your, mo your mother may have this and that, but if you had a different kind of brain, or if you were a more laid back kind of a person, or if you had a million great friends who did something else, who knows? Uh, the, I, I was once at a, um, I was once at a, at a conference at which there were you know, maybe 30 people and we got to know each other because it wasn't an entirely uh, silent retreat. And at the end of the last day, we were all having supper together, and we were sitting at a, I was sitting at a table with a number of people, all women, I think, as I remember. And one woman said to another woman, who she did not know personally, I guess, she said, I've noticed this whole weekend that uh, uh, you don't eat any cooked vegetables. Uh, uh, I guess, if it, I, you know, for whatever reason, she noticed that. I guess a vegetarian type place, and maybe she only ate that. She, I noticed you don't eat any cooked vegetables. So she said, that's right, I don't. She said, how come you don't eat cooked vegetables? She said, well, when I was a child, my mother was very worried. I was a very skinny kid. My mother worried about my health, that I didn't eat enough. I wasn't going to get vitamins. And so we always had a scene about the vegetables, and she insisted that I eat cooked vegetables. And the original questioner waited a minute, and then she said, that was a long time ago. <laughs> you, know, you know, and it was, I shouldn't say in a bad way. It was just that was a long time ago. But, and who knows? And I think the reason that this person may not eat the cooked vegetables is that she may not like cooked vegetables. That's another reason. But to put it on your mother from 50 or 60 years ago seems like an extra added attraction that you don't need because it sets up mind webs of I don't like my mother, my mother, my mother's nervous, my mother this, my mother that. If we could just say, you know, I am choosing not to eat vegetables for whatever reason. Could, could I add something? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, th I think it can be helpful to really, um, I think what you identified can really be generalized that a vast amount of our practice 
is becoming more aware of our habitual patterns that were formed a long time ago for some reason that have been maladaptive for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Yeah. And then you discover that you have it. And this the, this is what makes therapy um, gives employment for many people. <laughs> but, and then when you, but the thing, the thing about noticing, Donald, which is a very important thing for you to say, because if you notice that something is a habit, you could change it. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if it was somehow uh, intrinsic to me not to be able to eat vegetables or whatever, but if something is just a habit, then it's just a habit, and it's probably modifiable. If uh, I, I said to somebody recently my, that much of my practice today, these days, is uh, noticing the impulse. I, I would say maybe a main, a main part of it. Maybe when I'm sitting, I'm trying to develop some kind of particularly uh, relaxed mind state or particularly steady mind state. But in my daily life practice, my biggest practice is noticing the impulse in the mind to go with a moment of annoyance and finish the story about it. And, you know, that um, coming over White Hill, for instance, in my car and find that um, cars are going particularly slowly. Maybe I'm making this up. I'm trying to think of something I might get annoyed about. Uh, it's not a good analogy. Or going on the highway. It's too crowded and I'm going to be late. And everybody is driving individually in their car. And I look at my watch, oh, I'm going to be late. And I look around and I think, uh, look at all these people driving just one person in a car. There's a fuel, you know, we have to be careful, carbon footprint. And, you know, we should really make a, a special gas tax. And the mind ready to have a little rant about something because it's gotten upset, not about the gasoline or the air pollution, it's gotten upset because I'm going to be late. And then it has to do something with the upset, so it, it, it grabs the nearest thing to, to rant on about, and the people, and they're all alone in their car, and there should be a rule about that. I myself am alone in the car, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> so the, it's, the mind just going on a rant about something, where in fact, what it means is, you know, I'm gonna be late for the dentist. Uh, probably the dentist will take me when I'm late, we just won't have any conversation. Actually, that hour that's set aside for the, the hygienist to work, she could do it in a half hour, or the half of it we spend talking and visiting. That's the way it is. You know, it's like having your hair done. They talk and visit, but if you say, I have to be out of here in 10 minutes, they do it. So, you know, so you say to yourself, all right, I'll be there a little late and we'll work it out later. But the, so what I'm trying to do is I am trying to dehabituate my mind from going on rants. Because you know, there's always something to find fault with. I was thinking about, um, came up in a conversation about becoming annoyed, uh, about who got annoyed. Anybody here got annoyed about anything this morning so far? <laughs> Think, annoyed about anything. Yeah, annoyed about anything. You know, that a car was blocking my car in the driveway. Uh, somebody had been driving it and I had forgotten to check the gas, and I had to stop to get gas. So I wasn't, I wasn't towering mad, I just, uh, uh, but I, I was watching that the mind, that it's a little bit coaxed over into irritated or mad, or a, a little bit worried, uh-oh, this won't work because I'm late, looks for something to do to, that, that doesn't make it better, that looks for someone to blame it on, myself, somebody else, 
it, it thinks of dire consequences. It imagines people won't like me because I'm late. It does all kinds of maladaptive things where it would have said, if it were paying more attention, you're late, you'll get there when you do. The best way to get there would be happy. Let's uh, sing or let's do metta for ourselves or let's do something that doesn't, I'm, I really, uh, I'm sure I told you, unless you're quite new to being here, that I have a, um, a, a rescue dog that's now about 12 or 13 years old who snarled all the time when we first got him because I think he'd been maltreated living in the street. And the part of him that's terrier has not forgotten how to snarl. And the part of him that's Bichon, Bichon Frise is very sweet. That part was always sweet. But if you touch him on the sofa and he didn't expect you to come, he does Till still. And I say to him, hey, it's me. And he looks around and it's okay. But he's still skittish. I figure in my mind, it's just like that Bichon Terrier. It's a little bit skittish. And I do something and say, I'm trying to decondition the growl into something else. And I think, actually, I think it's working. I think it's working. It's a reasonable thing. I'm not interested in being a better meditator. I'm interested in having a happier mind that less often falls into um, uh, unwholesome states. Somewhere in what I prepared today, I'm going to say that, that uh, it seems to me the practice is most about wise effort. I read, I read a better word for wise the other day about effort, diligent effort, you know? It is wise to make that effort, but diligent sounds, um, I like diligent. It, it. I also wanted to read to you another thing from the Shambhala Sun. I wanted to read you that thing about the baby. You know, sometimes you see a whole, that, that baby story, you know how sometimes you come to a school and a whole school of a whole class of kindergartners are being let out at lunchtime, and their parents are all there to meet them. And you see all these five-year-olds coming out of a school, and you realize here's the next generation. It's like fresh, fresh people who didn't do the whole story yet. You know, really, <laughs> seriously, doesn't it lift up your heart? Is that a silly thing to say, fresh people? I, you know what I, you know what I. I no, now I feel maybe it was silly. Is that silly? I cry about when, when you know, Cub Scout Troop 7 is going to raise the flags before a, a Little League game, and they're all standing like that, and I, I have tears. They are just fresh and new and starting, and they have to do another 70 years. And, and I, I, feel, I feel love and compassion for them. Do you not? Are they not beautiful? And they're not mine. I don't know them. But everybody's fresh new crop looks beautiful. <laughs> if you have that kind of eyes. This is, it came out of the same, um, this guy, I was moved to at the start by reading this poem, but then when the baby came, I didn't want to start from this poem. Uh, this is a poem also from the Shambhala Sun. It's called For Raymond and For All of the Raymonds, which is to say For Everyone, by Tanya Davis. Tanya Davis is a poet laureate of the city of Halifax. And a man was murdered in Halifax. Um, probably was the member of the staff. Who was a member of the Shambhalasan staff mm -hmm. and uh, a prominent LB, LGBT activist. Mm -hmm. There are words that spring to mind like sadness and like violence, like senseless, senseless crime, like how this affects all of us. 
like how every tear and every eye falls from all of us. And today Halifax is an ocean of anguish, a sea of angry beside the Atlantic. And how do we handle this? What happens next? How do we manage the sorrow and stress? This afternoon I walked the sidewalks, not so different than the one where he met his death, where no person should ever have to lay their head. Both Concrete and Raymond were innocent. I walked the sidewalk and every person I met, I tried to look into them. Do you know, do you know? Do you know what we're supposed to do now? Because I don't. I won't hate more. I won't love less. So many people, maybe even his killer, are loveless, not unlovable. Maybe ignorant, definitely sick, and probably he shouldn't have been let out to walk around, and probably he was hateful and homophobic. But what's painful besides this loss, besides all death, is the simple fact of it that remains that it isn't over yet. People left behind for every step we gain. And then some verses later it says, And now a being from the tribe of love is gone, and we are one less strong. In a battle we are tired of fighting in the first place. Lay down your arms. Peace is your birthright. So I thought about that, particularly the line, I won't hate more and I won't love less. That's a, that, I, that I think is, is, the, is the only stance to take for me to not be undone completely in, in my faith that it could be different. We have to all the time make a decision. She said, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. What should we do? Do you know what should we do? There's a, um, there was a touching story I brought last week and we didn't get a chance to read. It's a story about a man who uh, it writes a column for uh, the New York Times for their style section. Uh, and he tells the story of his own life. He's uh, uh, just had graduated from Yale Law School and um, was just you know, in between getting his first job. And his father committed suicide with no, for no reason that anybody could know. They, he, tells, he's, he tells about it. He said, um, if you'd asked me, at the end of that fleeting summer following graduation from Yale College, what I'd miss. That I'd, I'd miss the absence of questions. I loved being questioned. Turns out I shouldn't have worried because a week later at the peak of my not back to school season, my father killed himself and the questions began in earnest. How did he do it? And why did he do it? Why did he do it? It wasn't an obvious reason. And he goes on to say that why maybe is uh, not the most helpful in the end of the, in the, end of, the uh, of the essay. He goes on why and why and how he goes on and he has jobs and he does this and that and a decade goes by and he's plagued by the question of why. Finally, he writes a book 
called um, something that has to... Anyway, he writes a book, Father's Day, about his father's suicide. But once and for all, he writes out everything that he knows about it and speculates about it. Has, has a publisher, the book is published, said it sold 17 copies. Uh, it sold 17 copies. Uh, he said, I crept back into my law office to lick my wounds. And then from out of the blue, as they say, the deputy editor of the style section of the New York Times, a perfect stranger, called me up. Would I be interested, she wanted to know, in writing a modern-day advice column, a Dear Abby for the Facebook age, with internet daters and 15 minutes of fame, Kardashians. <laughs> of course I would. How did you find me, I asked. I read your novel, she said. You liked it? I heard myself blurt out. <laughs> By this point, I had remade my book into a small handicap <laughs> to be vaguely ashamed of. I don't remember her reply. But I do remember the instant twinge of irony, taking a job, answering other people's questions when I had failed so utterly to answer my own. I was smart enough to keep this last bit to myself. And soon I began writing the social cues, advice column, the Sunday Times, that I write to this day. Do you, anybody read it? Yeah. They're funny. Yeah. They're funny. Uh, uh, not, she said, the questions are not as weighty as pondering suicide. My mother-in-law has a terrible habit of licking her fingers when she cooks and serves food. What should I do? <laughs> That's a question that somebody is thinking about. Um, it term, no matter what I log on, when I log on to the dating site Match.com, I find my boyfriend there as well. What should I do? <laughs> I am certain that the woman who swims laps next to me at the Y is peeing in the pool. What should, what should I do? I tried to answer with compassion, a splash of wit, and by helping to keep hand-to-hand combat to an absolute minimum. But what the readers of the column don't see is my favorite part of the job, the thousands of unfinished, unpublished questions that flow into my inbox. And because of all those questions, the light went on at last. I was working on a new book. Uh, this one about social cues itself. I printed out every last question and sorted them into categories. Facebook fiascos, dating disasters, money matters, family feuds, staring at them all. I found a strange relief. For with every question, from the stupidly silly to the absolutely heartbreaking, I felt as I could see straight through to the person who had asked it, brilliant or dense, smart-ass or naive. At the core of every one of them lay a broken heart. It's what we have in common. Your tragedy may not be the same as mine, but we all have them, at least one. And we're trying to get along in the world just the same. And there's no reason for our tragedies and probably no escaping some feeling of responsibility for them. So we do what we can, asking questions, taking answers where we find them. I felt a kinship that had eluded me before. I am not the only walking wounded and never was. I'll never know what my father was up to, and you'll never know what your mother or the people across the street. But we're all in this together. 
Let us be as kind as possible to the people we meet, which may be the best answer, or at least my best answer to the question I've been waiting for since my column began. My father killed himself with a gun, in case you were wondering, what should I do? By the way, thank you, Mijo. Mijo, this is what you sent me. You sent me something else that was on the other side of this, or that's what you sent me there? It's a wonderful article. I've been carrying it around for six weeks, waiting to, waiting to bring it. The, the thing that seems to me is not even why did it happen, but what should I do now? How should I hold this? How can I manage? What's the choice? I will not love less or hate more. How to, how to do that? It's a nice thing to say, but how to do that? I think it's actually you have to catch the mind. Well, that's mainly, I have, I have two points. What do you want to say about that? I think the one point is keeping my body and my mind content and feeling good enough so its natural benevolence is more available to me so that my fuse level is, is um, longer or lower or whatever it is. I am further from my boiling point of, of irritation. And the other is to conscientiously work at um, deconstructing that habit of um, gnawing on a, uh, on a uh, gnawing on a bone isn't the right uh, analogy, of taking an annoyance and then ratcheting it up to, and not only did they say that stupid thing this morning, they said 500 things like that in the last 10 years, and on this one particular time when they said it, I thought that was the end. And I've never really made it clear to them that they shouldn't have said that, and all the ways that the mind can get further mired in it. I think, I think that we, uh, um, I think there's a certain uh, post-traumatic injury that happens to us when we've been insulted or uh, hurt, and that the best way to cure it is to take good care of it and not cause it to flare up again. You know, you have to you have to know it's there so you can take care of it, but um, you have to acknowledge it too, but not in anger, and then hope that it'll get better. What do you think? Those are two ways. What do you think of another way? Well, I, w I was connecting. I was I was reflecting on uh, wise effort, or you know, the, in, in the classical teachings, uh, or diligent effort, or Effortful diligence, <laughs> or um, and it's you know it's it's phrased in a way that comes through in translation, pretty complicated, but it actually is pretty simple. The way that the way effort is talked, and it really is about how to how to how to keep uh, practice fresh, and it's talked about in terms of you could really say it in very ordinary language of um, uh, trying to avoid. Uh, having your mind and your heart get stuck or troubled. And secondly, knowing what to do if you do get stuck or troubled. And that's what I was particularly thinking of, like to have uh, like a, maybe a little card that you carry around with yourself that you have in your pocket or your pocketbook or whatever that says, 
here are the two or three things that I have known from my experience are wise and get me out of being stuck. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know? and, to, and, and actually, then you have to, of course, look at the card once you're stuck. <laughs> or have it written on the palm have of your hand. Have it written on your hand. It's not the end of the world. Put yeah. something yeah, yeah, it's not the end of the world. Or now is the time to remember impermanence. <laughs> you know? And so the first two are about trying not to, as much as you can, get into difficult or stuck places, but they ha it happens. Yeah. And then knowing what to do. And then the third and fourth are basically about uh, cultivating uh, beauty and understanding and, and, when you're, and keeping that going. And that's, that's a simple way of talking about what is the guidance from 2,600 years. So you know what I want to add on yeah. to that? There are two things that I want to be sure we do before, before it's 11. Uh, one, as if you were here on the weekend, it was fantastic. Uh, Barbara Bogatin, who's a, a cellist with the symphony, was here. And her, and her husband, Clifford Saren, who's a neurobiologist at uh, UC Davis, was here. And Barbara played uh, four movements from the first Bach cello suite and uh, on a 300-year-old cello, the, a miraculous uh, sound. You know, she can play an open string and, and the whole room yeah. vibrates. And she's a fabulous musician. And she gave two talks, actually, which I have, about practice. And she's talking pra about practicing as balanced mindfulness and effortless effort. Mm -hmm. uh, that if you practice enough, then you're always there entirely, and it doesn't it doesn't have to be a struggle. Uh, and. Uh, Talked about being, she said, when I went to my first meditation retreat and Jack said, be aware of your body on the cushion or chair, follow the flow of the breath, move your attention to the energy in the different parts of your body, listen to the sound of your, all the sounds around you. She said, isn't this what I've been doing every day since I was eight years old, every time I sat down with the cello? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, I was thinking about that particularly, particularly in terms of talking, and we did this on Saturday. I, I attempted to do it. I think it worked. Talking about the practice that she's done. She talked about her practice to perfect the ability to have the music come through her just as the composer meant for it to be heard. Mm -hmm. And we made the point that when you're playing solo of an instrument, you might make an interpretation. Although who knows what was in Bach's mind or Haydn's mind. But when you're playing ensemble playing, you absolutely can't be there. Everybody else is there, and you have to be listening to them, and really have, uh, in a sense, um, in the way uh, some people pray and they say, "Lord, make me an instrument of your peace," and then you are not in the way. This is the godly the peace of godliness coming through you. I could feel in that you know, that you, you make yourself so not here that everything is in the music and all the attention is here and focusing from uh, focusing from that place. I thought it was a, a really a, a wonderful way to talk about perfecting the habit of keeping the attention in a certain way so that it can function in a certain way and making the cognate point that every time we sit here practicing Taking the keeping the attention in a relaxed and um, cheerful, cheer-filled or 
gratitude-filled or blessing-filled attitude is the, is the beginning part for being able, when there's something that comes up, to keep the mind in that blessing and, um, oh, oh, what's the word that I'm thinking about? Responsive uh, attitude so that it doesn't get hijacked and run away with stories uh, about itself. I thought it was tremendously often, uh, tremendously clear similar, uh, uh, connections between practice and practice and practice. And just on the point of what, um, I want to take one point from what Clifford said as well. He showed wonderful slideshows of uh, the research that's been doing, the huge amount of research has been done in the last 10, 20 years um, on the effects of mindfulness meditation with bar graphs of uh, the, the, what goes up and what goes down. But the one graph that stays in my mind is the test pre and post 30-day meditation retreats in mindfulness for the experimental group and a control group that didn't go on the retreat is uh, the specific test in which they show really dreadful pictures. Uh, suddenly they say these are going to be difficult pictures. So uh, I don't know whether they say that to the people taking the test, but they said it to us. So, uh, so you know what's going to happen. But you can feel in the room uh, kind of... Uh, because they were awful pictures. They were pi a lot of the pictures were from Michael Moore's 9-11 um, uh, film. Uh, and you see pre and post the bombing in Baghdad and terrible, gruesome pictures of people who've been hurt. And you, you feel the almost need or the need to back away. You see a gruesome picture and you can feel that your mind flinches a little bit. And because when they test people, they're testing them. They're testing them, and they can tell the amount of flinch. They find that people who've been meditating uh, don't move away as much. It doesn't mean that they are at all happy with what's going on, but they're less disgusted by it. They, they can keep themselves more. Uh, more equanimity in the mind is very important for me that that does not mean more indifference. I think it means the opposite. More compassion is available when there isn't disgust and, and negativity. So that it's the, the ability to stay close to seeing terrible stuff that allows for real compassion to come through. I thought that was very, very... Did you think that that was, I thought that was such an important thing about staying in this world. A lot of times people say, how can I stay in this world and, and look at what's going on and not be, you know, I need to stay in retreat forever. I think retreat is more and more to prepare anyone to be in this world with a full um, a regard for what's going on and uh, the ability to respond with compassion. So I thought I'd read a little bit, thinking about effort, the, the, those four efforts to put out from the mind what's uh, going to be, what is unwholesome or what might be unwholesome, and to put into the mind what is wholesome or, and keep in it what 
is wholesome. Uh, so this is by uh, Alethea Black, who's a um, born in Boston, graduated from Harvard in 1991. Her father was a mathematician. Uh, and for a long time, she believed her name, the Greek word for truth, was his way of tipping his cap to the idea of absolutes. Then one day, her mother overheard her and said, nope, we got your name from a TV show, Judge, <laughs> Judd for the Defense. She's actually published quite a lot of things and been on o Oprah's Book of the Month. And she's a wonderful writer. And it's called You on a Good Day by Alethea Black. I can't read the whole thing. By the way, I belong to an organ. Uh, 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 you can get a subscription to one story, and you keep getting one stories all the time. And they're written by extremely wonderful writers. So on a good day, you don't give, you don't give the finger to the black pickup truck that tailgates and passes you aggressively. Then let go of the wheel to give it two fingers when you see the rainbow-tinted peace sticker on the bumper. You do not call the friend, the one who was in the hospital a few weeks ago and whom you did not call or visit. You do not call her today because you need something for her, from her. You do not consider dousing your refrigerator with gasoline and setting it on fire because the sound of the motor makes when you're trying to work. You do not wish the world would just ignite and everybody would die in a ball of flame simply because it's been hot for a few days. You do not conjure up in as vivid detail as possible every time anyone has ever wronged you in any way. You do not think we're a ruined, useless lot and we deserve everything we get. You do not say under your breath while foregoing a pack of cigarettes, it's either pain in the body or pain in the mind, take your pick. You do not ask why you were in church and where's Lazarus now? Dead again, that's where. <laughs> you do not spot the white-haired lady who always brings up politics and lets you know your politics are wrong and think you arrogant, ignorant, self-righteous old bag. This is all you do not. Later on when you pass the Trader Joe's clerk who seems enervated by your very present, you, you do not think you have no use for me? Well, guess what? I have no use for you either. <laughs> you do not realize as you think this that there's a phrase to have no use for something that you have acquired from your mother. When the cashier says, have a nice day as you exit, you do not say, I'm afraid I already have other plans. <laughs> While driving to the hairdresser, you do not think of your neighbor's teenage son who got drunk and got behind the wheel and killed himself and four of his friends. In the shampooing chair, you do not mention, you do not wonder aloud why retail establishments cool themselves to minus 70 Kelvin whenever it's hot outside so that a person has to be miserable both outside and inside. <laughs> you do not say to your hairdresser, she scrubs your, your scalp so enthusiastically you wonder if you're starting to bleed. I just washed it this morning and I haven't rolled myself in tar since then. <laughs> you do not wish that your hairdresser would stop talking about her near-death experience and start focusing on what she's doing with her scissors. You do not care more about your bangs than about, you do about the life of a sister human being. As your hairdresser continues to talk about her doctors, you do not think about the doctor who told your friend, the one you did not call, that the lump in her breast was nothing. You do not imagine your friend's face between the green, beneath the green and yellow scarf where her hair should be. When you get home, you do not let the fact that your internet connection has gone out 
make you want to eat your own hands. You do not tell the girl on the other end of the phone line that she and her Comcast comrades have picked the wrong person to fuck with. You do not feel fury at yourself when the Comcast man arrives hours later and it turns out that the problem was your modem was on standby and that all you had to do was push a little black button <laughs> that you had in fact already pushed several times but apparently not in the right way. You do not, when the Comcast man presents you the bill, sign it for Scott, who knows how to push my buttons. You do not sit at your desk and think about the presidents you did not like, other presidents you did not like, and all the things that you did not like. You do not think about televangelists. When the phone rings and your friend calls to tell you that her 84-year-old father is very sick, you do not calculate how many more years he's gotten to have, to, uh, she's gotten to have a father than you did. You did not think about your former colleague from a midtown office who used to look at you with disgust when you ate your fruit cocktail out of a can. You do not wish you told him, I'm eating it out of the can because it's quick and easy and this way I won't have to wash a dish. I'm eating it out of a can because I don't care about appearance and wealth and so-called behavior. I know you care only about these things, so it's different for you to sit next to me while all of this is happening. But if it's going to bother you that much, maybe you should look away. You do not wish you'd add it, and if this is about you secretly lusting to eat your own fruit cocktail out of the can, go right ahead. I didn't build a cage and lock you in it. You locked yourself in it. You do not think about your other colleague who liked to complain that everyone else was successful because they came from money and their parents helped them, and she wasn't successful because she didn't come from money and her parents never helped her. You, never, you do not wish you'd said to her, keep telling yourself that. I can skip over now because I'll skip. You get that. We'll get up to you do not, you do not, you do not. You do not, you do not. You do not. You do not think of the word webinar. You do not, when someone calls you, you think when, whenever someone calls you, this person just wants something from me. You do not contemplate the myriad ways in which you have been defeated and manipulated and deceived and abused. You do not, you do not, you do not. Not on this day. On a good day, on this day, you wake up and remember the sight of your four-year-old nephew aiming all of his fire trucks at the television during the coverage of the California wildfires because he wanted to help. On this day, you think about the afternoon you heard a famous poet thoughtfully, gently, lovingly answer a deranged question from an audience member who was mentally ill. On this day, you think about the day the woman at the ATM vestibule booth and the ATM vestibule heard you crying on the customer service phone that you'd pushed the wrong button and you needed access to that money right away because that check was all the money you had and she had reached into her wallet and handed you a 20. On this day, you remember Anne Frank's little scribbled words or you don't remember remember them so much as you see them floating before your eyes and before you've got them and because you've got them taped to your wall on a scrap of paper. It's a wonder I haven't abandoned all my ideals. They all seem so absurd and impractical. Yet I cling to them because I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart. On this day, before you get to the city, you pull the car over and turn the engine off so you can watch a row of ducklings and their mom waddle across the street. On this day, you watch the one in back, the one who's having trouble keeping up because it looks like there might be something wrong with his foot or his yellow head, or you think, that's me. On this day, you think, it's not all rot. 
There's some goodness left somewhere, a small fleck of it, and maybe around the eyes or the mouth or on the teeth like a stray piece of spinach. On this day, you remember hurt people hurt people. On this day, you think, we're all just trying to get through this thing. On this day, you think about the word ukulele. On this day, you think about your high school science teacher, the one who told you that fate was like a carousel, and if you miss your, your horse the first time it comes around, or even the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth time, if you are a person who's really good at missing things, it will come around for you again. On this day, you remember the friend who com comforted you by saying, if it was meant to be, you can't ruin it. On this day, you remember because you remember how often you remember things wrong, that the barn swallow you thought died didn't die, that it woke up and flew out of your window. You thought it was dead, but then it got up and flew away. On this day, once you're in the city, you take a different turn, and you walk down Lafayette Street. And this different turn makes you remember the last time you walked down Lafayette Street at 4 o'clock in the morning on November 5th, 2008. You remember how you were really drunk that night. You were walking home from a really great party because at the really great party, you had gotten into a tremendous fight with your boyfriend, the one who'd wanted you to take his name. And you had yelled something about how you didn't want to be owned by anyone. You didn't want to participate in an ownership society, a society of people owning other people. And why did it have to be that way anyway? Oh, yeah, because there's such a thing as real love. Well, maybe there was. But human beings didn't seem to be capable of it anymore, if they ever were. And then you'd shouted something about how you weren't trying to be high or mighty or anything. And maybe you would dig the whole ownership concept if only you'd met someone you wanted to own, too. On this day, you remember how at 4 in the morning on November 5th, 2008, there'd been a guy on a skateboard who'd passed you by, trailing an enormous American flag. And you remember how that flag had seemed to billow for blocks, how it was the biggest, most American, most magnificent American flag you'd ever seen. And even though you're not a person who's particularly moved by flags, tears sprang to your eyes as this vision of stripes and stars moved past you and through you and overtook you. And you remember how you felt as, as if you were watching a scene from a movie and you wished there'd been other people there to see it. On this day, the thought of the skateboarding American flag makes you want to go to a movie, and so you do. You go on a whim as always. You just sort of show up at a theater and see what's playing because you're either too lazy or too obstinate to plan these things in advance. The strategy of movie-going does not tend to work out very well for you, but on this day, something is playing that you actually kind of wanted to see. So you buy a Kit Kat bar, and you find a seat in the back, and you put your feet up. On this day, a few rows in front of you, a couple is sharing a soda, passing it back and forth, back and forth, being kind. The <laughs> kindness makes you want to get up and give them one of your Kit Kats, but you don't because the movie is starting. The movie is starting is in the 1970s, and it's about secrets and grace and the mysterious ways we are called to bear with each other. In addition to being good, the movie is beautiful, and it's nostalgic for you, all those 1970s cars and 1970s sidewalks, <laughs> 1970s light. You had not thought it was possible to catch a, ca capture sunlight from a particular year on film, but apparently it is. And all of a sudden, you remember you were a child once, and it must have been in the 1970s, because you remember walking around in that sunlight. Halfway through the movie, you discover that you're crying, which is strange because it isn't even a sad movie. You're crying because it's good. Mm -hmm. On this day, when the movie ends, people get up and file out of the theater 
talking and chewing gum, just as they hadn't been, as if they hadn't been present at a miracle. Because that's the way it always is. First miracle, then time to make the chicken. But on this day, you don't get up. You don't get up because you don't want it to end. So you continue to sit there in your seat in the back, long after the music has stopped and the lights have come on and everyone else has gone home. <laughs> so you want a good day. You could do A or B. I, 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 I lo Did you like that? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. How do you get these stories? You write to... Um, you write to one-year membership. You can get uh, from 232 3rd Street, 232 3rd Street, number E106, Brooklyn, New York, 11215. And you send one, one year, 15 issues are $21. So they they come a little bit more than once a month. And the thing about one story is they never publish the same author twice. Mm -hmm. So most of their authors have been published in other places, but you get to see a new author every time. I like the idea of this is me on a good day and this is me on a bad day. Because on some days, you know, the mind it carries on. This one offended me, this one this, this one that, if I'm... Uh, and on other days, it's a fantastic world. It's beautiful. It's, it's marvelous. And to, just to be able to know that does not mean that they all become fantastic. It, it becomes possible then to say, you know, I'm, not, I'm having a bad hair day. This just is not, this, my, my mind is not having a good day. It's hungry, tired, irritable, sleepy, overworked, frightened, whatever it is. I should probably take it home and put it to bed <laughs> or take good care of it or, or what? Go listen to music or watch an old movie. But I should take care of it and not make myself wrong for having it. <coughs> the idea that we have a choice, not even so much a choice about whether or not it's a bad hair day, but a choice about what to do about it. That's what I think. That actually is quite a liberation. We could think, I, you know, I could go on thinking these thoughts, or I could change the thoughts. And if I can't, because the thoughts are off and running, I can go home and wait till they pass. Like I have an illness and I have to be in quarantine, so I shouldn't pass it to other people. There's that uh, line from uh, one of the Rilke poems where he, he says, no, no feeling is final. Uh, mm -hmm. the, there's a, yeah, go ahead. There was something, I mean, this may be a good time to mention it. There was something Do Donald mentioned before about the scriptural advice. Uh, and I, I've been carrying around something from the, uh, it was a translation by Thomas Haro Bhikkhu. It's from the Vitaka Satana Sutta, the relaxation of thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it's really very schematic and very wise, very plain, very practical, although I, I do have a problem with the, you know, Plan Z, when everything else fails. Plan Z is 
Uh, this is what a bhikkhu does with his teeth clenched and his, his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth. He should beat down, constrain, and crush his mind with his awareness. So that's not, that's more like uh, what I was going to say. Um, that's brute, rather than my, my, that's brute force. Yeah. Brute force. Um, that's all. I mean, it was really quite, when I came across this, I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is basic cognitive psychology. You know, I, James loves that particular sutta. He always reads it. Najima Nakaya 20. And he, and, he, <laughs> <laughs> and he loves to read it on retreat. And people are often shocked the first time they hear it because they always heard that, you know, mindfulness, spaciously be aware. Oh, my mind is filled with rage. Take a breath. Feel how unpleasant it is. Take a breath. It's unpleasant. May this rage pass soon, you know, but not clap your teeth together, put your tongue out of the roof of your mouth, <laughs> and get rid of it. But, but actually, I thought it was, I, I found it uh, quite um, uh, en um, energizing in the sense of suggesting that, you were, that not any of us is necessarily a helpless victim of a mind attack. <laughs> if we have an attack of terrible you know, the attack of the blues or attack of the nasties or something, that we could say, you know, I'm not doing this. You know, that would yeah. Another way, another way to say it, because I, I think it probably does, um, would benefit from some uh, cultural translation <laughs> that last point, but because I, I find it quite important for myself and for others, sometimes all of what one tries with a really difficult state of mind or heart or body doesn't seem to work in terms of giving relief or shifting or whatever or giving awareness. And some, you know, sometimes there might be a really, really old habit that just has one in one in its grip. And sometimes one just has to say, no, I am not going there. No, 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 no. And just keep saying that. And that takes a certain kind of uh, willful effort. And I think that's that. That's what that's pointing to. You know what yeah. I found actually when that's one of the, one of the side tricks, like an additional one, is something, and I can't get it out of my mind. And is if I tell somebody, if I tell a trusted confidant, you yeah. can't believe, <laughs> but this mind loop that's gotten in like a demon in my mind, like a dibbig, and it's giving me a lot of trouble. And, and I tell it to somebody, it's not gossip really, but it's like if you tell somebody, if it's tellable, it's not that big of a deal. It's mm. like. Psh, uh, mm. That's a very important thing to continue to talk about. I see that it's way after 11, so I'm sorry to have kept you late, but we had all these things to say. It's a pleasure to have you come. Isn't it sweet to have you know, all of us? So it says here that next week we should be talking about loving. By Tanisaru, because... Uh, so we'll probably talk more about uh, loving kindness and... Uh, um, Anyway, it's all the same thing, you know. <laughs> it's all the same thing. I, I've, I'm pretty sure that I could amass a random selection of things that were interesting to me from at home and bring them in and then uh, say, what do you want me to talk about? And whatever topic you did, don't you think it would fit? Uh, Infinity in a grain of sand. <laughs> that's, that's something like that. I was watching yesterday for this, and we don't have to say why. That uh, I was watching a, 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 the, the soccer, fi world European soccer finals 
and I was uh, watching uh, Ukraine play um, uh, Sweden the other day. And it was beautiful to watch, I mean, because at the, at the level of that kind of professionalism, it's, it's, they're, they're like dancers. I mean, they're amazing athletes, big, beautiful bodies. And sometimes uh, soccer is a hard, is a brutal kind of a sport because three people run into each other. You can practically hear the thwack when they run into each other. And, they, and somebody falls down. And the minute they fall down, somebody... One of the you know people picks them up from the other team, you know. So it's it's so clearly a, a, a gesture of we are competitors, but we're not enemies. We're playing a game. I thought that that would be such a good symbol for we could compete in the world. We could have countries that competed in a wholesome way, and then we could pick each other up right away. Mm -hmm. the, there's no place that I could have brought that story, and you could have said, brought about conflict or whatever. Anyway, why don't we do this. Having said that, who's going to be here next week? Everybody coming? Those people who come, bring a thing that people say to me, you always see such interesting things, Dharma stories. I live in the same world as you do. See a story that you could tell as a Dharma story next week. Something on the TV, something that happens, something you overhear. Okay? Is that clear? So that we make the point We'll talk about loving, but we'll talk about all the stories. So may we all go out of here in such a way restored and uplifted that our very presence makes a difference in our proximal world and because things spread all over into the whole of the world so that all beings everywhere live in peace and harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.